Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name's Otto. I'm alcoholic. Thank you for letting me be a part of your convention. Uh, when Frank called and said, um, this is Frank from Honolulu, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Who are you really? <laughs> uh, it's amazing uh, uh, to be invited to come to something this magnificent and be a part of it. And I want to thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really just overwhelmed. And especially with all the long-term sobriety that's here. Uh, Uncle Herb, thank you for stepping aside tonight and letting me have the mic. I really appreciate it. Those of you that weren't here Thursday night, he has a story worth telling. It was worth hearing. Uh, Can't hear me. Hello. We going on now? All right. All right. I just love it when they have people sign our stories. I got some stuff going on. I can't wait to see how they do this. <laughs> I also want to thank Carl for being such a gracious host. Talk about a mother hen. You guys were really showing off when you gave me Carl. He's the delight. Anyway, uh, there's a little, this is a neat podium. It's got a timer on it. Now, it may not mean anything, but, oh, look, two hours and ten minutes. Okay, I hope that tells me something. Because I am, I can go on and on and on, and I have promised the people who make the tapes and CDs that I will try to be done in 78 minutes. It will be a first. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks to the old timers for blazing a trail for us. I hope you'll, you'll listen to my story tonight and enjoy it and consider it a fruit of your efforts and your work with others in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for those of you who are new or nearly new, I hope you'll enjoy my story tonight and that it'll give you some hope that you too might come to know a new freedom and a new happiness and a new way of life. I'm from Oklahoma, originally. Oklahoma City is where I was born. Uh, grew up in uh, relative poverty. My father was a police officer. I have uh, two younger brothers and an older sister. We grew up in a little house with about 900 square feet, one bathroom, a converted garage for the third bedroom. And uh, it was right outside, turn two of the dirt racetrack where the car jalopies would race on Friday night. And when they'd come around turn two, they'd throw mud in our front yard. So I come from the other side of the track, you might say. Uh, I've never had any whatever that was you were drinking, Cavassier or Chavassier or whatever it is. I don't know what that is. I never drank anything like that. <laughs> uh, but I am full-fledged alcoholic. Uh, 
I never knew that, though. That was a big part of my problem. Uh, reality and my perception of things seemed to have this big void between them. And uh, I never saw myself as an alcoholic. I never saw myself as a problem drinker. I just saw myself as a person with a lot of problems. And if you had my problems, you'd drink too. Plus, I enjoy drinking. I like to drink. I like the taste. I like the way it makes me feel. I always thought these were cute. You know, I, I, don't know. I never had any use for a lid. Reclosable what? You know, resealable what? Isn't that stupid? <laughs> like we're going to put the lid back on the bottle, yeah. Not me. Anyway, uh, I grew up in a home where drinking was, was uh, commonplace, drunkenness was commonplace, violence and chaos was commonplace. Uh, if I wanted to spend any time with my dad, I had to go down to the tavern to hang out with him when I was a kid. I grew up playing shuffleboard and horse collar and dominoes and uh, shooting pool and picking the tunes on the jukebox and uh, playing the parlay cards. And uh, you know, I never knew there was anything queer about drunkenness. I never thought there was anything odd about it. I was familiar with it from the time I was a young child. I grew up in a family where we give each other alcohol and drugs for gifts on birthdays and Christmas. Uh, my brother gave me cocaine for Christmas. I mean, yes. Thank you, bro. You know, and uh, uh, we don't have a family tree. We've got a family thicket. Uh, you know, my mom and dad married and divorced each other three times before I got out of high school. They couldn't live with each other. They couldn't live without each other. And I'm married and divorced and married and divorced and my brothers are married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced and my sister's married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced. And I want you to know Christmas is a holiday from hell at our house. Because <laughs> everybody's got extended families and everybody wants to see one of these one-sixteenth grandchild they got, you know. And nobody likes anybody. Everybody's mad at everybody and... The police are just as apt to show up at my house as Santa Claus on Christmas Day. And I'm not talking about Dad, because he left a long time ago. My dad was so ashamed of us. I can remember hearing my mother scream in an opening the bedroom door and looking down into that converted garage down those stairs, seeing my father on my mother's chest with her shoulders pinned to the bed. His fist hit her in the face. And her screaming as the blood splattered on the wall and all over the beds. And my dad told me to get back to your room. And I'd go. We get up the next day, my brothers and my sister and I, and we act like nothing happened. I learned a lot of things growing up in that house. Some were taught, some I just figured out. Uh, some of the things I learned were big boys don't cry. Quitters never win. Winners never quit. Exceptions are made for exceptional people. Practice makes perfect. Where there's a will, there's a way. If anyone can, you can. Don't feel bad. If you feel bad, there's something wrong with you. Always give a man a good hand. A man's word is his bond. Always tell the truth. 
Well, that was my dad's idea. That always tell the truth thing. <laughs> I knew I couldn't tell the truth in my house. The truth would get me killed in my house. <laughs> you know, there's no way I'm coming in going, Dad, you were a real ass last night. I mean, you were drunk. Man, you hit Mom last night. You know, I mean, you don't say those things. But I went off to high school, and I went to a school that was a new school in Oklahoma City, and it was a very, it was a lot of wealthy kids going to school there. And uh, I was top team. I was voted friendliest boy in my school. I was class president and student council. Nobody had a clue what was going on where I grew up. I was, I had the ability before I ever had my first drink to just be somebody else. Family business stays at home. And so the image I projected in public was one of a person who was happy, healthy, and whole. And of course, like many of you, I swore I wouldn't be like my dad. No way am I going to be like my dad. You know, and I never hit my wife and I never hit my kids. And uh, for that, I thought I was different. You know, I'm not like my dad. Yeah, I drink, but I just like to drink. <laughs> but I'm not like my dad. I was really happy to get out of that house and uh, went off to Oklahoma State University. And I'm the first person in my family on either side to ever graduate from high school, much less go to college. Uh, I'm the only person in my family that has his own teeth past the age of 40, uppers and lowers. Uh, alcohol will rot your teeth <laughs> if you drink the way we did. Uh, I didn't do very well at Oklahoma State because uh, I like to drink. <laughs> I joined a fraternity and they drank a lot. I couldn't make it to class. I don't know what it was. You know, I always thought I had this sleep disorder. You know, I just have a hard time going to sleep at night, and, and so I would rather drink. Now, I'll study tomorrow. Study was always going to happen tomorrow. I'm drinking today. Study, you know, happen tomorrow. <laughs> well, needless to say, I didn't do very well in school. And... Uh, they made me a dry pledge in this fraternity. I was Sigma Alpha Epsilon, and, and they made me a dry pledge. Can you imagine that? I mean, I'm not even, I hadn't even been in school a little while, and they said, Otto, you can't drink anymore until you're initiated. I was offended. I mean, everybody drinks in the fraternity house. And they said, yeah, but everybody doesn't do what you do when you drink. You know? And... Uh, I'm embarrassing my fraternity brothers and my pledge brothers. I mean, I like to get naked when I drink. <laughs> and back in the 60s, streaking was really cool. Yeah, they call me the streak. And uh, I love to get naked and run around with everything showing. And it just, you know, when I get to drinking and... Missed it. So I'm running along trying not to step on it. (laughs) 
That's some more of the distance between reality and my, my imagination. <laughs> my best thinking. And now I embarrassed them on, on Mom's Day. And uh, so they told me I was not to drink again until I was initiated. And uh, needless to say, I didn't get initiated into that fraternity because I thought that was very unrealistic to, you know, to punish me like that and to treat me so differently. Uh, I've had problem with drinking from the get-go. Uh, you know, I didn't get in trouble every time I drank, but every time I got in trouble, I'd been drinking. And I'm the kind of guy that should have gone to jail for the things I did when I was drunk. But my dad's a cop. You know, and when your dad's a cop, you don't go to jail. You just get away with it, you know. Although you do have to go home and face dad, and sometimes I wish they'd have put me in jail. But Anyway, I didn't do very good in school, and in 1967, that wasn't a good plan because the draft was going on, and I got drafted into the United States Army. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a person who has... Just never caught a break. You know, I'm, I, I've always felt like just, I'm just really unlucky. You know, I've been, I've been screwed since day one, pretty much. You know, not only was I born into poverty, I was born on Christmas Day. Yeah, mom slides one turkey in the oven and another one pops out, you know. And, This may take more than an hour here. <laughs> I've got to hurry up and get sober. Anyway, uh, they, they put me in the service, and I, like Uncle Herb, they tested me, and the only thing I was fit to be, which really surprised me, was an infantryman. You know, I thought I should have been a general's aide. I should have been in the motor pool. I like cars. I've been around race cars my whole life. You know, I, I like... Uh, I should should have been in charge of the NCO club. It would have really been a rocking joint, you know. And uh, but for some reason, those aptitude tests that you take, they can identify your skills. And my dad had taught me. One of the things my dad taught me was how to kill. That was one of the things he thought it was important for me to learn as a young man. And uh, anyway, I wound up in the infantry, and I I, I didn't like it. <laughs> It wasn't a good time to be in the infantry. And then uh, I did everything I could do to avoid going to Vietnam. I stayed in uh, as much training as I could get. I went to NCOCS and became a Betty Crocker sergeant, instant sergeant. You know, I wasn't sharp enough to go to OCS, so I went to NCOCS, and they made me a squad leader. I'd much rather be a squad leader than a follower because I don't trust anybody. And, you know, we're going to go to this combat deal, and... <laughs> I'd much rather be in charge than somebody else telling me, you know, ought to take that hill. No, 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 I got a better plan. <laughs> you take the hill, okay. Anyway, there was no amount of training that they could have given me to prepare me for combat. And uh, we uh, I saw and did horrible things. Vietnam in 1968. It was a bad time to be in Vietnam. And uh, this week was Veterans Thursday was Veterans Day. I want to say welcome home. 
and thank you for your service to all the veterans in the office. And for all of you who have loved ones like myself, my son-in-law's in Iraq, may God be with you and them. Because what goes on in war is unthinkable. The day before I was wounded, we went in on a hot LZ, the hot landing zone. It was just a the place they'd blown out of the jungle on the top of a mountain. There really wasn't a clearing. It was just broken down trees from the artillery rounds and the bombing. And uh, we went in right on top of an NVA large force, and they shot us up pretty bad. And uh, there were just a few of us that got on the ground that day. And uh, the helicopters were down and burning, and the LZs blocked. And we're surrounded. And the CEO radios down. He says, I'm going to drop some firefighting equipment to you. I'm going to drop some plastic explosives to you. I want you to see if you can't blow down some trees, see if you can't enlarge that landing zone, see if we can't get some help into you guys. Because we'd just gone in with weapons and water. We didn't even take our rucks. We knew we were going in for a fight. And while I'm watching the SEAL's helicopter hover over that landing zone, another rocket came through the jungle and just blew up right in front of me, just blew up, and it wavered, and it fell into the fire with the others. And a kid named Henderson and I, we jumped up, and we went out, and we got these guys out of the helicopter. But one had been blown out the door from way high, and we had to go look for him. And when we found him, he was a mess. He was still alive. His legs were blown off. His arms were mangled. His face was destroyed. We used our boot laces to put tourniquets on his legs. We put pressure all over him to try and stop the bleeding and to muffle his cries so he wouldn't draw fire without suffocating him. The medic finally got to him. And I went back into the fight. I never saw that kid again. I never knew who he was. But I've lived with memory of him for all those years. For all these years. You don't forget things like that. And you see, y'all don't understand. When I lay down at night to go to bed, I think about him. And I need a drink. To help me get to sleep. I gotta go to work tomorrow. I haven't been in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that works for you, but the next day I walked up on an enemy position and I was shot twice. You ever heard the expression we're gonna blow your ass off? Well that's what happened to me. One round went right through my hip, and the other one went right through my ankle. I was coming back from the landing zone picking up rucks they'd dropped into us. And I wasn't from me to this gentleman from their position when they shot me. 
And as I lay there in the jungle floor, they got out of their hole and they came and they took my ruck off me and they used a knife to cut the straps. And they put my watch off my wrist and they went and they got back in their hole. And I could hear them jabbering. My helmet was gone and my weapon was gone. And a firefight ensued and I don't know. The first guy that came up and tried to help me got shot. His name was Sullivan. Then a young man named Dwayne Grendel, who I have not been able to find, and I hope someday to find Dwayne Grendel, Private Dwayne Grendel, crawled up under that gun and pulled me down and saved my life. They sent me to a hospital in Japan. I was there seven weeks. I developed a horrible staph infection. My pelvis was shattered. My femur was blown away. And there was nothing to hook together. And so they just shortened my leg four inches and just tried to make it grow together as a solid mass. When I turned 21, I'd been in the hospital four months. When I turned 22, I was still there. Spent the first nine months in a cast from my chest down. Couldn't move anything but my arms. It's called a body cast or a spica. And they would cut windows in it so that they could dress my wounds. And the pain... It was, it was like torture. Not being able to heal. I had an open draining wound for seven years. I had pus draining out of my buttocks for seven years. I carried my bandages and things on this side so it would look like something was there. <laughs> uh, I carried my billfold over there today. Unfortunately, I, I'm rich, but I don't have any money, so it don't look like there's a whole lot going on. <laughs> But uh, I had a lot of chronic pain. Chronic pain. It hurts. You know, they tried to get that hip to fuse solid with that femur. And they fused my ankle solid in a dropped position so I could walk on my toe and pivot off of it. But it wouldn't heal. And bone on bone is pain. And you don't understand. I need this medication. I need these pills that I take. They're prescribed, most of them, <laughs> and I need a drink. You see, my little brother beats my mom now that dad's gone, and then he went to prison, and he hanged himself, and you don't understand. When I lay down to go to sleep at night, I see dad on mom's chest. When I lay down to go to sleep at night, I see my buddies in Vietnam. When I lay down to go to sleep at night, I go back to that hospital that I laid in for all those months. And when I lay down to go to bed at night, I see my brother twisting on that T-shirt. And I'm different. Matter of fact, you might ought to buy me a drink. <laughs> I'm a lot easier to get along with when I've had a drink. I'm pretty ap- I was pretty angry. I was very angry. And uh, I felt like the world owed me. And uh, I was just really pissed that I couldn't collect. And I'm not a bad guy. Uh, I just didn't have very good skills. Uh, I danced as fast as I could trying to be a good son, trying to be a good neighbor, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good father, trying to be a good employer. 
and I just never could be successful, and I couldn't understand why. And my drinking progressed and progressed and progressed. I finally became unemployable and unemployed, and I was just living off my modest army pension. And what I would do is I would drink until I would pass out at night, and I'd keep the blinds drawn, and I wouldn't answer the phone, and I'm estranged from my family, and I don't see my daughter. I don't talk to anyone. When I wake up in the morning, or when I wake up the next afternoon, I don't do mornings. <laughs> when I wake up the next afternoon, I eat my pills and I take my drink. And the only thing I ever did was go to the races. I still loved racing. It was my passion, car racing. Big NASCAR fan. And uh, I never dreamed that I had a problem with alcoholism. I never dreamed that my mom or dad, my dad's a cop. He can't be alcoholic. He's a cop. I don't know what an alcoholic is. I'd never heard of AA. You know, my idea of an alcoholic was like W.C. Fields, you know. And I'm way too good looking to be W.C. Fields. Yeah. And uh, I like to dance. And, you know, I, you know, these are the things I think I'm doing when I'm, I'm really isolating and staying at home. Anyway, uh, you know, reality and my thinking were getting pretty distant and People talk about denial. Uh, our book doesn't, but people do. <laughs> you know, denial to me has the connotation of a lie. You know, uh, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Miss <laughs> Lewinsky. That's denial, okay? Our book talks about delusion, and there's a difference, because for me, anyway, delusion means that my reality is distorted. And a lot of wonderful people tried to help me. They could see that I was suffering, not just with my disability and my drinking and my pain medication abuse and my inability to have a meaningful, effective relationship. They knew I was struggling and suffering, and they tried to help me, and and uh, my pat answer for everybody was, you don't understand. See, you don't understand. This this pain is so bad. And the memories are so bad. And the nightmares are so terrible. I, I, I draw disability for post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I draw 100% disability for my physical trauma. Uh, you don't understand. You don't understand. And I could always justify, rationalize, minimize, explain away my drinking. My drunkenness, it was never the fact that I drank too much, because I know that I, I drink well, thank you. <laughs> I like to drink. I can drink good. I can drink a lot. So when something would happen, I'd always be able to manage to make sense of it. But I, this, this, I was at the car races in Florida, this just before I got sober, this when I'm bottoming out. I'm at the car races in Florida. I've gone by myself, because I'm, I'm, I don't even have friends anymore. Uh, I don't. Nobody understands, and I don't want to even be around anybody. I don't want to talk to you. I can't drink the way I like to drink when you're around. You know, when the party's over at 2 and everybody else goes home and they say, won't you stay here the night here, you know, they don't understand. i got to go home and drink some more. I'm not done. So I just quit having friends, you know, that way I can drink the way I like to drink. And I went to the races by myself, but I went. I met some good old boys down there. And uh, you know, I never hook up with the family carrying the little playmates. 
<laughs> into the into the grandstand with their kids. You know, I always hook up with the two big old burly boys. I hook up with Frank. You know, carrying that big cooler up into the stands. You know, <laughs> you know, setting that big and because they're gonna do some serious drinking. And uh, so I hooked up with these guys, and we were going to all the races all over Florida during Speed Weeks and Daytona 500. And, uh, we went to the Florida State Fair that was going on, and they were racing late models on a half-mile dirt. Half-mile. Half-mile. <laughs> 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 We drank, and I ate those little pills. I like to wear those 501 blue jeans. Those Levi's got that little pocket right here. That's where I carry my pills. I ate those pills all day. A little Valium. A little Darvacet. A little Demerol. A little Percocet. And a lot of beer. And bourbon if I can get it. So anyway, it's, you know... Middle of the afternoon, the races are over. We've had a good time. We go out and we take in the fair. And we're going around and we're throwing balls at Cupid dolls and looking at all the pretty girls and eating corny dogs and having fun at the fair. And then we leave there and we go to a nightclub. It's called the pit. I'll never forget it. It was the pit because they had this big hole dug in the ground and you could go down in this pit and dance. And I like to dance. I might be crippled. But I can dance, okay? And when I get to dancing, when I'm dancing, I know all you girls want me. I know you do. I got on my fake alligator cowboy boots and my fake gold bracelet. I'm trolling over the railing, you know, there. Just seeing which one of you going to snatch onto this catch fine, this fine catch right here. It's amazing, you know, I hook up a cute little blonde. Big sore on her lip right here, you know. <laughs> so I drink bourbon and dance till like 2 in the morning. I've been drinking 12, 14 hours this day. And I don't know about you, but I'm a puking drunk. Okay? And if there's anybody who's new or nearly new and you wonder, you know, am I alcoholic? Am I alcoholic? Now, this is not a dead, this is not a requirement to be alcoholic. But if you do this, quit asking yourself this silly question. Okay? I stumble out of this nightclub two in the morning. It's cold outside in Florida at two in the morning in February. I'm sweating. I'm holding on to the car in the parking lot so I don't fall down. the place i mean it went everywhere it's on my boots it's on my pants it's on these it's on these poor people's car i mean i got it's coming out my nose i got little pieces of corn dog stuck in my nose
go back in the club, get me another drink. Tell that little gal. I got sick. Damn. I promise you I'll never, ever, ever, ever again as long as I live ever eat another state fair corn dog. (laughs) That greasy damn thing made me sick. And that, that was my truth. You know, that wasn't BS. That two and two is four. That's up. That's down. And that corn dog made me sick. No way do I have a problem with alcohol. No way, you know, I, it's, I didn't eat enough. I ate too much and bad dope. It's always something. It was never the fact that my consumption was excessive. I had no clue. And I went to counselors and therapists and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I changed homes, I changed hobbies, I changed hangouts, I changed everything I knew to change in my life, I changed wives, I changed everything trying to just wrestle some kind of happiness out of my life and I couldn't do it. And today I know it's because I'm alcoholic and I drank. But I didn't know it then. I didn't know it until I wound up in a treatment center against my will. I didn't want to go there, but back in 60 or 85 when I got sober, Valium was being overprescribed. And there was a lot of stuff on television about people becoming addicted to Valium. And you know what? When, when I run out of Valium, all the time, I don't like being out of value. And I think, you know, I might have a problem with value. So I went and saw this doctor, and he put me in a treatment center, and I thought, good, I'll get off this value, and they'll put me on Xanax or something, you know. Phew, because, I mean, this is awful. I could I could choke on water. I mean, I just was always out of drugs. I mean, I don't know about you guys. One of the things I heard early on in treatment that just just nailed me was they said people that don't have a problem with prescription drugs don't count their drugs people that don't have a problem with prescription drugs have old prescription drugs I'm the kind of guy that would come into your house ask for a toothpick you'd say where it was I'd say, I'll get it. I rifle your cabinets and I find these old prescription bottles, you know. They're like two years old and there's 30 tablets of Percocet and there's 28 still in there. That's the damnedest thing I ever saw. (laughs) 28 free Percocets, man. That's great. Yeah, uh, there was never enough. How many did I take? All I had. That's, that's, that's how many I took. But you see, my hip hurts. It hurts. It really does. I mean, I, I have, I was a dock worker. They don't have anything to do with boats. You know, Dr. A didn't know what Dr. B was giving me. Dr. B didn't know what Dr. C was giving me. And, and they didn't have the computers back then. And 
and they couldn't track it. And I promise you, I could walk into any clinic and drop my pants, and they'd go, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, I know that. Yeah, I can tell that hurts. I don't need a picture. Uh-uh. No, no x-ray. What do you want? It's ugly. And, uh, and I abused the pain medication, and I drank on top of it. I wound up just pretty much incapacitated. So I'm in this treatment center to get detoxed off Valium, and, and you people come in. You guys are coming in there, you know, and I really needed a medical detox, and, and, and I'm glad that I got it. I, I desperately needed a medical detox. But and once I got, I kind of got my faculties about me, you know, and the, and the shaking and stuff stopped, and, and I was comfortable, uh, and then you guys came in, and you guys were a riot. <laughs> you guys were amazing. I mean, you would come in and you would you would tell my secrets. You talked about stuff that I had experienced but I couldn't talk about. You were the first people I ever met in my life that I couldn't look you right square in the eye and say you don't understand because, you see, I knew you did. That's the beauty of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is one alcoholic talking to another. All those people who tried to help me were good people, but they couldn't help me because, see, they don't understand. But when you told me about yourself, I knew you understood. Auto you never reached me. Auto I broke down that wall and helped me to see the reality of how drinking was affecting my life. And I couldn't use my disability as an excuse. I couldn't use the suicide of my brother's excuse. I couldn't use my violent father's behavior excuse. Because you had those experiences too. There was a black man that came into that treatment center. I'll never forget him. And he told his story. And he, his life was so unmanageable. He tried to commit suicide by asphyxiation. He turned on the stove and was going to gas himself. But his best plan, thinking sucks, just like mine. And his best plans don't work, just like mine. And instead of asphyxiating himself, he blew the house up. And he was burned horribly, you know, and his fingers were burned off and, and he was white instead of black. And he was, I mean, he was horribly disfigured and, and, and he was an alcoholic too. And, you know, you poor bastard, you know, and, uh, the thing about it was when he talked, you know, I could, I couldn't say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but I couldn't, you took my yeah, buts away from me. And it was a wonderful gift. It was, for me, it, it was like uh, this this revelation. And the only thing I can liken it to is if somebody's telling you a joke and you don't get it. <laughs> you know, everybody else is laughing, but I don't get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden you get it. Oh! <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. I'll be damned. Who'd have thought it? Son of a gun, you're alcoholic? I'm, I'm alcoholic too. Damn. Who'd have thunk it? Mom. Dad. Hey. We're all alcoholics. Come on. They were not as excited about it as I was. They did not come to my family week. But I, I really was. I, I mean, I truly got excited. It was like a mystery had been solved. 
It was, I had never tried to quit drinking. I have no, I have no understanding for those of you who have tried to quit drinking and relapsed. I'm sorry, I have no, I mean, I understand the obsession and whatnot, but I've never had that experience because the, I, the idea of quitting drinking is the stupidest thing I'd ever heard of. No way. I mean, when I don't drink, my life is like, <laughs> fingernails on a chalkboard, you know, why would I want to go there? And so, to, uh, Quit drinking was not even in my repertoire or our thoughts. And so now I'm alcoholic. What am I going to do? You guys seem to be enjoying your sobriety. But, you know, I got all these creditors. I got these out of control kids. I got ex-wives that aren't happy. Yeah, I... I got this horrible disability and this chronic pain. I mean, it's real. What am I going to, I can't medicate that? This isn't fair. You know, I don't, what am I going to do? They said, well, Otto, we have a program of recovery for you. It's a simple program, program, 12 step program. What you do is you get your support group, men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous. You attend meetings and you get their big book. It's a, it's a book, guidebook on how to stay sober. You know, it's to be studied. It's uh, not light reading. You take a look at it and uh, get your sponsor, somebody that can, you know, kind of be a guide for you in sobriety and help you answer some of the questions that you may not be able to answer early on, like, you know, why. And uh, 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 and we ask that you pray. <sighs> I had a problem with that one. Yeah. I looked at those steps on the wall and I went, yeah, 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 God, 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 damn. <laughs> it's a God deal. I couldn't believe it. I went to treatment at a Catholic hospital. I should have known better. You know, I should have known better. I should have went to Sheck. I should have went somewhere. I could have I could have gone to a hospital, army hospital. I could have went to the VA. No, I go to a damn churchy hospital and get a churchy solution. And see, because I don't believe in God. And so I'm screwed. And there was a guy named Mike who was coming up to the hospital doing 12-step work. Now, Mike is not the sharpest knife in the box. And he hasn't got long-term sobriety. But he is doing what is suggested. And he brought me the keys to the kingdom. He brought me the gift that let me out of that I don't believe thing. You see, the day I was shot... In Vietnam, my first thought was, I've been shot. My second thought was, God help me. And my third thought was, there is no God. And on September 22nd, 1968, I became self-propelled. I stopped asking the question, God. I tore up Christian bookstores. I belittled people of faith. I just couldn't imagine there being a God in a world that was so ugly. A world that would allow a father to batter a mother and his children. A world that would allow a man to hang himself. A world that would allow my friends to be blown to pieces. A world that would allow me to suffer physically the way I've suffered. I just couldn't imagine the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the the Holocaust and all that. You know, if there's a God, he must be a damn terrorist. And I don't want anything to do with him. And you're asking me to turn my will and my life over to the care of God? And Mike, this butter knife... From AA says, 
Well, Otto, in the third step there, it says, as we understood him. You don't have to believe in the God you gave up on in Vietnam. What would God have to be for you to take a chance and try and turn your will and your life over to his care, not control? We'll let you keep that. Wow. Now this, I mean, to me, I, I don't know how a butter knife came up with this, but it, I mean, I always thought that I was supposed to figure out what God wanted me to do. You know, and if I could do it right, then I would earn his grace. You know, if I could just please my father, then he would treat me like a loved son. He would become my loving father. And that never happened. And I had it all backwards. You know, I just wrote this real simple concept. If God was all-powerful and with all His power, all He wanted for me was to stay sober. And here's the hook. Like it. I have to like it. Okay, if I don't like it, I ain't going to do it. And I fully expected Mike to say, no, 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 no. No, no, no Disneyland gods. Come on, pick a team. What are you going to be? Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian. Come on, pick a team. We're killing each other all over the world. Don't pick a weak team. Come on, pick a team. But that's not what he said. He said, that's your God. He said, you pray to that God, the God that's all-powerful, that can do anything with all his power. All he wants is for you to be sober and like it. Now, I did not believe it would work. So I was in a pickle. You know, people say motives are important. I, I, I tend to disagree. My early on motives were, I'm going to do everything you people suggest. And then when I get drunk, I'm suing AA. That was my plan. That's why I started on this journey. I'm going to own all this. And I documented my meetings and I documented my calls to my sponsor. I would have the guys I was in treatment with come to my house and we would read the big book out loud so that they could testify that I had indeed read that book. And I'm praying at the beginning and the close of every one of those meetings so I have got all the instructions covered. And when I get drunk, I'm going to be a rich drunk. But what happened was, in spite of those intent, my intentions... By doing what was suggested, regardless of my motives, I stayed sober 30 days, and 60 days, and 90 days, and 120 days. You know what? The fingernails started to not be so loud on that chalkboard, you know, and there would be time that I'd go, oh, God, I hadn't thought about something awful all day, you know, gee whiz, I gotta catch up, you know? It's like, uh, and, uh, you guys were so great. You were so great. You let, you took me to your homes. Uh, you let me come to meetings in your homes. I mean, you let me come into meetings in your homes, and you took me out to lunch, and you let me hang out, and and uh, you, you know, you, when you'd go do things, you'd invite me, and I was like, wow. I mean, you know, I didn't feel worthy of any of that, you know. And, and uh, what I've come to know is that you know, that AA and God uh, aren't anything like what I thought they might be. Uh, you know, God loves me because He's God, not because I'm good. You guys love me because you're loving alcoholics, not because I'm lovable. 
Not because the newcomer's lovable. You don't have to be lovable to be loved in AA. You just have to show up. And when I showed up, you loved me until I started to love myself. And I found out, you know, I don't have to earn God's love. I just have to let Him love me. And I learned that. I started having these experiences just as soon as I started, became willing to try. Things started just, I mean, magic just started happening in my life as soon as I was willing to try. One of the first things that happened to me, you know, I did that third step prayer and I went home and my car got stolen. Johnny, Johnny, where's God? What's with God? Where's God? My car's gone. Where's God? I pray to turn my will of life over to care of God. My car's gone. Now, how's this work? Now, I told you I didn't have any money or anything, but I had a nice car. Okay? My car has always kind of been who I am. You guys know these people at your club. They drive that shiny one up and they park it right in front of the door, you know? And, you know, they, they ain't got nothing going on, but that car is looking good. And it's who they are. Or it's the guy that rides up on the Harley that makes too damn much noise, you know? And you can't even have a meeting because he waited till y'all were sitting down praying to go outside, you know? And then he's going to come in and he's, he's got the Harley, you know? And well, I had this really cool Camaro until I did that third step prayer. <laughs> then the insurance company gave me a little Chevette. A little five-door hatchback. I am so embarrassed driving this little car. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to come to meetings. I'm parking way away from the door. And what I come to learn was, you know, I'm, I was really dependent upon things for my sense of well-being. I'm the kind of guy that used to roll down the street in that IROC Camaro, drive by a six-year-old playing in the yard and go, wrong, 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 wrong. Be looking in the mirror to see if he's looking at me. Yeah. I got it going on here, kid. You know me. Uh-huh. So I got to drive that Chevette and get right-sized. God's done a lot of cool things. You never know what He's going to use to change your life. But I can tell you this. I did a four-step inventory and learned truths that I was never taught. I learned the lessons that healthy fathers teach their children. I learned the things that my dad couldn't teach me. You know, I always thought if you all would get your act together, then I'd be okay. And I did that inventory and I found out that my problems are of my own making. And it was good news. It's good news, folks. Because if you have to change for me to get happy, I'm screwed. (laughs) I left my story about masturbation out, okay? Anyway, you never know how God's going to help you. 
I knew I needed changing. I learned that when I did my inventory list. You know, I mean, it, it was hard for me to figure out, you know, what my part in all this stuff was. You know, and when I was, I was 38 when I did my inventory. And when I sat down to do my fears list, I honestly, with all my heart, believed that that's up, that's down, two and two is four, and I ain't afraid of nothing. I believed that. My sponsor said, well, just write down something. Just ask God for help, get a pencil, and write down something. God help me. Spiders. The dark. Not having any money. Being in pain. Being laughed at when I don't want to be laughed at. Not being laughed at when I want to be laughed at. Not being able to get it up. This is way too much fun. Well, we're not even going to do a sexual inventory tonight. But anyway, I set about to make my amends, and I cleared up the wreckage of my past. I told another person all my secrets. My fifth step was a convulsion, you know, and I was really blessed. I, I, you know, it says sometimes we have this little give and take when we do fifth steps, you know, and they tell us a little about themselves and whatnot. The guy listening to me knew to shut up because I was just puking it out as fast as I could. And if he stopped me, I might not get it all out there because I didn't hold anything back. And it was a convulsion. And I didn't get a lot of relief from doing the fifth step right away. I, the relief for me came when I listened to my first fifth step from another. And uh, it was just a tape recording of mine. And that was the day I joined the human race. All in God's time. Anyway, everything's been made right for me. I'm happier, healthier, more whole physically, emotionally, socially, legally, financially, merrily, parentally than I've ever been in my life. Every aspect of my life has been changed. Nothing, nothing falls outside the realm of my higher power. There's nothing that he cannot do. There's nothing that he cannot make right. Today I know peace. Now I don't, it's kind of like I know Carl. We don't hang out all the time, but I know Carl, okay? I know peace. I don't hang out there all the time, but I know the guy, okay? I, 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 I know what it's like to know peace, okay? And uh, I live in a world that I didn't know existed. And all I did was 10, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12. I started sponsoring people when I was eight months sober. The guy came up to me and he says, would you be my sponsor? And I said, oh, I can't sponsor you. I've only got eight months. But I was really proud that he asked. I went and told my sponsor, Johnny, this, this stupid guy asked me to be his sponsor today. <laughs> I guess I'm sounding pretty good, huh? <laughs> he said, what would you tell him? I said, oh, I told him I didn't have enough time. He says, well, what step are you on? I said, eight. He said, what step's he on? I said, well, I guess he's on one. He says, well, why don't you go find that guy and help him with one through seven? And I went back and I found Rick and I told him I'd help him. And you know what? I worked my ass off trying to learn what was in that book and stuff so that I could help Rick. <laughs> and you know what? By trying to help Rick, expecting nothing in return because he had nothing to give me, I fell in love with Rick. Wow. I'd had it backwards my whole life. I always thought that you had to do something to make me love you. You know, if you if you do it right, then I'd treat you lovingly. No. 
I make a decision to treat you lovingly. And if you'll let me, in doing so, I'll fall in love with you. And that's how Alcoholics Anonymous works. I've come to love myself by loving you. I buried my father. I buried a loved one. Not a lovable one. He never changed. But at five years sober, my willingness to forgive him went from here to here. By the grace of God, and I forgave my father, and I was able to go and love him in his ugly, ugly, drunken final years. I became his loving son instead of expecting him to be my loving father. I was about three years sober. My first wife comes to me. She says, you're doing so good. You take the little bitch before I kill her. <laughs> my daughter comes to live with me. I said, Holly, I don't know how this is going to work out, sugar. I said, uh, you know, I'm just going to love you no matter what. I'm going to love you the way people in AA love each other. I'm going to love you the way God loves us all. She was not impressed. She's 15, and she has set out upon to make my life a living hell. And I stand before you a grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups. I've been going to Al-Anon for 18 years. And I go every week. My Al-Anon home group is the Thursday noon men's stag at the Legacy Group in Plano, Texas. And if you've been sober a while and you find that you still don't like it much... Come on and see us. Because in the 8th step in the 12 and 12, it says that defective relationships are the cause of most all our problems, including our alcoholism. And, you know, AA loved me into sobriety, but the family in Al-Anon helped me learn how to love my family. Holly's a bitch. <laughs> she comes by it honestly. I'm her dad. Uh, but she would say things while we're riding along in the car, and I'd want to reach over and pull her lips off of her face. I mean, how can she say that? God. You know, but I, I'd just go to my meetings and go to my Alan on me, let my AA family, my Alan on family just love me so that I could make good on that promise. Holly, I'm going to love you no matter what. And instead of being her judge and her juror and her executioner and telling her what she should do and shouldn't do and damning her, what I did was I accepted her just as she was. And, I, you know, instead of making her clean her room, I just closed the door so I didn't have to look. And you know what? When it got to smelling bad enough, she cleaned it up. And when she got tired of having dirty plates in her room, she carried them to the kitchen. And when she got tired of not having clean clothes to wear, she got them to the hamper. You know what? And as time went by, we started to get tighter. You know, as I've just loved Holly and made that my goal instead of raising Holly, we got tight. By the time she was 16, we're getting along good. I bought her a little car. Now, it's a crap car. This is like the little Chevette, you know. I'm not trusting her with my car or anything, you know. I mean, she's got, I bought her this little 82 Honda Prelude. It's the kind of car that when you step on the gas, it just makes more noise. It doesn't go faster, you know. <laughs> I figure she can't get hurt in that. And uh, But she's a terrible driver. She's a curb banger. I mean. Anyway, you know, we're doing good. We're doing good. But she comes to me one night. She says, Dad, 
Can Kristen and I take your car? I have this cool little convertible. You know, new paint, new top, kicker stereo. You hear me? I'm still, it's early in recovery. <laughs> uh, God, we've been doing so good, you know. Okay. Okay, I'll put the top down. Y'all be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. They weren't gone 30 minutes. Bing! Dad, I was going too fast and I crashed the car. You okay? Kristen, okay? Can you drive the car? Where you at? Where they're not supposed to be? Stay right there at that phone. I'll be right there. I'll be right there. Hung up the phone. All bets are off. Little bitch is dead. Screw all those promises. Screw all those prayers. Screw all those meetings. Anything but my car. Not my car. I'm so angry. I go out and I get in that little 82 prelude. And I'm about to pull the steering wheel off that damn car because it is not getting me to her fast enough. It is raising hell, but it ain't going nowhere. And I'm having that conversation in my head, you know, where she says and then I say and then I say and then she's going to say and then, then we're going to say. And what I heard while I was having this conversation, what I heard was, Dad, I was going too fast and I crashed the car. That's unheard of in my lineage. Nobody cops to the truth. Nobody accepts responsibility. I remember when I crashed my dad's car going too fast. I told him, Dad, the deer ran out in front of me and I swerved to miss it. And he almost beat me to death. He took his belt off and he whipped me and he held me up by my ear. I used to hate that when he'd lift me off the ground by my ear and he hit me. And don't you know what that car means to this family? Don't you know what that's going to do to the insurance? Didn't I tell you to be careful? And that night I got to go to Holly and comfort her. See, because she knew what that car meant to me. She knew what it was going to do to insurance. She's devastated. She knows that she's let down the one person she most in the world wants to please. Isn't that a great time for Dad to come whip your ass when you're dying? It's what we do. And so Holly and I grow closer. Today I have the intimacy and the closeness that I never dreamed I could have. Today I have grandkids and I get to play with them. I get to be with them. I get email and I get gifts. I get calls and things out of nowhere. And I remember I was teaching a drug and alcohol class in the high schools in, in Oklahoma City and just as volunteer and came time for me to go to my daughter's high school. And I told her, I said, Holly, if you don't want me to come, I, I won't. I won't embarrass you in front of your classmates. And she said, no, Dad, you come. I'm proud of you. 
And each time the classes would pass before the new next group of kids would come in to listen to me for an hour, she would come and stand with me and let every one of those kids know that I was her dad. I've never known love like that before. I never knew those were things that I even wanted. You know, if I had made a list of the things I need and want, I'd have sold myself short. Oh, darn. Sorry, Taper. Uh. <laughs> okay. Wonderful things have happened to me. Everything's been made right. Everything's been made right. Everything's been made right. There's nothing pending for me. I have no issues. I've got nothing that's hanging out there that I still wonder about. When I was seven years sober, I met the car races on a Friday night like I'm always at the car races. It was still my passion. I'll drive hundreds of miles with a forecast of rain, hoping that maybe they'll race a little bit. Okay? I love car races. I'm a racing fanatic. It was the one thing I'd always had through my whole life. It was the only consistent thing in my life. And this night, I'm at Friday night, and I'm at the car races, and it's a beautiful night. The track's good, and the car count's good, and the races are good. And I got up and went home in the middle of the races. And I didn't know why. I just had this, this, I just had to go home. Make of it what you will. I had this great sadness as I left the grandstand. And I'm walking down the grandstand and getting in my car. I don't know why I'm going home. I don't know why the races weren't important anymore. It's like, where'd my passion go? It's like I've lost something. And I went home and my wife is like, what are you doing here? And I told her, I said, I don't know. I don't know. I think I just soon watched TV tonight. And I was sad. And I sat down, it was 9 o'clock, and I turned on the TV, and it was on ABC, and 2020 came on. It used to be Hugh Downs and Barbara Walters. I don't know who does now. But the first little vignette, the first little 20-minute story they told was called The Gift of Life, and it opened up with a helicopter flying over the jungles of Vietnam. And I sat and I watched this. It's a story about a medevac... Uh, or a, Emergency room surgeon and a guy writing a book on emergency room trauma. And he asked this surgeon, what's the worst trauma case you ever handled? What's your worst case ever? And this Dr. Swan from Pittsburgh begins to recount when he was a young surgeon at the 71st Medevac in Pleiku, Vietnam in September of 1968. And they brought in a young soldier who was so gravely wounded that the consensus of the medical staff was to medicate him, set him aside, declare him expectant, and let him die. His legs are blown off. His arms are mangled. He's got shrapnel the size of your thumb in the middle of his brain. His eyes are gone. He's brain damaged. He's blind. He's legless. And his arms are mangled. Let him die. But Dr. Swan went against the consensus and operated on the young man and saved him. And the guy writing the book says, well, how did he turn out? I mean, did you save him for a life of some quality or a life of horror? I mean, he's all screwed up. And Dr. Swan didn't know. And they set about to find him. And it took two years. And they started telling this young man's story. And this young man is my story. He was in a helicopter trying to drop firefighting equipment to infantrymen and pinned down in the jungle on September 21st, 1968. And a rocket came out of the trees. And and I sat there on that sofa and I shook. 
My wife came over and she held me. What's the matter? What's the matter? I said, this is my kid. This is my nightmare. This is my story. This is him. And it was. His name's Ken McGarrity and he lives in Columbus, Georgia. And you know what? Since Vietnam, he met a woman talking on a CB radio and they fell in love. They married and he fathered two children. He sails. He scuba dives. He's blind. He's legless. And I don't mean cut off at the knees. He sits on his tailbone. He has nine fingers he can feel with two. His left arm goes behind him. And his right arm goes in front. But he suffers terribly with post-traumatic stress. And he abuses alcohol and drugs. And he self-mutilates. And he cuts himself for the pain. And he's still stuck in Vietnam. He doesn't know what happened to him in Vietnam. And he can't get home. And if any of you have ever known a vet that couldn't get home, forty years later, we got guys that still aren't home. But I knew what happened to Kenny. I was looking right at him. I thought maybe I could help. And I reached out to Kenny. And uh, Kenny didn't believe that I was who I said, but he'd been at some crackpots had contacted him and stuff. But I was decorated that day by the commander of his helicopter. And when I provided him with the name of Don, Colonel John Yarbrough, then he he knew that it was it was me and another kid named Henderson that that saved those guys that day. And that started a relationship between Kenny and I. And I'm trying to trying to help Kenny get home. And uh, I failed to tell you that when I did my four-step, I told my sponsor that I'd do anything except go back to Vietnam. And I thought he might say, well, when you're ready, we'll do it. You know, that's not what he said. He says, well, we'll do what you can. And then in God's time, we'll take care of Vietnam. Well, it was God's time. Because Kenny took me back to Vietnam. I'm trying to get him home, and he's taking me back to all those things and those places that I don't want to remember and that I don't want to feel. And I got angry. I got angry. I mean, I didn't like going there. But Kenny could hear my program. You know, when I'm on the phone, I was loving Kenny. I was trying to help Kenny. Kenny gets sober. <laughs> Can you believe that? Kenny got sober. Holy I spoke at a Georgia convention, state convention, not long ago, and Kenny was in the audience. When I told this story, I said, Kenny, how long have you been sober? And he's sitting in his wheelchair down front, and he goes, ten years. The people just about fell out of their tables. <laughs> God used me to help Kenny twice. But Kenny was killing me early on, and I had this resentment, and I was mad about it. You know, and I don't know about you, but when I've got something going on, I have to label it, identify it, understand it, so I can put it over here and not have to mess with it. And so what I had done was I had decided that, you know, this SOB has yet to tell me thank you for saving his life. 
And every time I'd talk to him on the phone, which I did several times a week, I'd get madder and madder because, you know, he has yet to say, Otto, you're a wonderful, great, heroic man. You did, you saved my life. Thank you. And I'd hang up that phone. I'd go, you bastard, you know. It was no small feat saving his life. Talked to my sponsor about it. God, sponsors are great. We were, the Olympics had just happened, and the Senate, the American had won the gold on the rings uh, in uh, this is 1992, and, and it was a big upset win. And he said, did you see that last night? I'm at breakfast with my sponsor. And he says, did you see that guy win the gold last night? I said, yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, he was phenomenal. He says, yeah. He said, if he walked into this restaurant right now, would you know him? No. Not unless he had his uniform on. He says, well, see how important it is to be thanked and to be thought of and held in high regard and to be recognized. And, you know, I mean, this guy stood on the podium in front of the whole damn world and they played the national anthem, raised the flag and made a big fool out of him, made a big fuss over him. And you wouldn't know him if you walked in here and you're all pissed off about a little thank you. <laughs> you know, he says, uh, you need to let go of that. I couldn't. Every time I talk to him, I get madder. Well... HBO's going to make a movie about Kenny's life. Now we're talking. I got Leonardo DiCaprio or Tom Cruise picked out to play me. Nobody ever called me. But Kenny wanted me to send him some stuff for his movie. And I put a cover letter with it, and this cover letter I wrote, Kenny, I got a resentment. You know what? In all this time we've been together, and all this time we've talked, you've never once told me thank you for saving your life. There it is. Got it out. <laughs> Felt good about it. Made the mistake of showing it to my wife, though. She goes, what's this part right here about you never said thank you? That doesn't belong in there. What is that? What is that? Isn't there something in your program about if there's a bug up your ass, it's your bug or something, you know? And, uh, you know. Oh, the spiritual axiom. Oh. Oh. Shoot. You know, I just, I'd rather get called on, called out by my pigeons than my wife, but. Anyway, I went back to my word processor to edit it out. You know, I just wanted to edit it out. Just I didn't want to rewrite the whole letter. I just wanted to edit it out. And, and what happened was, as I was trying to make that letter make sense, what came out was, Kenny, I've never said thank you. Whoa. And that rolled over me like a tidal wave. Selfish, self-centered, that's the root of my problem. For all those years, I'd only seen me running into that burning jungle to get Kenny. Truth is, I'm trapped in the burning jungle. Kenny's safe in a helicopter. He flies into harm's way to help me. And when that rocket hit that helicopter, he gave his sight and he gave his legs. And he entered into that darkness and that disability for me. And no one had ever told him, thank you, Kenny. Thank you for your sacrifice. 
And that's 78 minutes, but I can't quit right there. I'm sorry. I love you guys, and you're going to have to crunch that CD. I can't help it. Uh, yeah, even the past can change if we're willing to see the truth. You know, I've come to understand my father and forgive my father. Everything's been made right. They told me if I could ever go ten years without infection, I'd be a candidate for a prosthetic hip, an artificial hip. But I couldn't go two years without pus running out of me. I was always infected. I have chronic infections called osteomyelitis. It's a bone disease. I'm always infected. I'm always in pain. I learned to moderate sobriety. <laughs> you know, I quit hurting myself. <laughs> you don't get to take any dope, you quit hurting yourself. <laughs> and you know what? Ten years sober, I'm ten years without infection. Thank you. Ten years of infection. I always thought that I took the pain and drank the whiskey because, I mean, I took the pills and drank the booze because I had the pain. And those of you who live with chronic pain will understand this. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.